system and you can use numbers up to tens of thousands if you want. But uh, I hope all of you picked up the handout from last week because that comes from the NIV narrated Bible in chronological order. In other words, the best that we can do in putting it in order by Dr. Lagarde Smith of Pepperdine University. And then it was published by Harvest House. So it's a very, very wonderful example of the 46 parables that Jesus talks about. And so when we did the number one, and we use the word sword, you can always use the word, you can put it back up again, you can use light, you can use anything that's associated with the number one so that you remember it. Remember I said last week, we can remember faces, but sometimes it's hard to remember a name. You've met people and you go, ah, man, what's their name? But I know that person, like Vince is sitting down here. And now I know because he told me his name. And uh, there's those things. So it can be anything that you choose. When we did two, which a swan, it looks like a number two. And so that way you get to say to yourself, all right, that's going to work. I'll remember what a swan is too. So two of what? Or the number two. And then three, we looked at the heart, which over the top of the heart is like the number three. And we discovered that as we started going through the 46 parables, we saw from the outset Jesus telling a new story, taking what was taught in the Old Testament and now making application to their day-to-day lives in the light of what God was now doing in him and through him on behalf of the purposes of heaven. The two, when we talk about a swan, it's looking at what Jesus is teaching again using the agricultural world that they lived in. And so things like sowers and seed and, and soil, and you begin to say, okay, Lord, I can, I can put that together now and realize in the 46 parables, the first one is this grand story that you're telling, a new story, because it starts with a new garment, and then it starts with a new wineskin. And so you begin to go, oh, okay, that's starting to work. But when you get to the second part of it and you realize he's talking about the things that they're very common in their everyday life, agriculture, seed, soil. And so he begins to teach now about the kingdom of heaven and the application of those particular parables. When we get to the heart we're really looking once again at the heart of God for humanity, the heart of God for his world, the heart of God for what he's doing in the hearts of men and women so that he can draw them to himself. And so he gets them to lift their eyes off the natural and to see the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God, there's a king in the kingdom. That's why in Matthew 6, he says, seek first the kingdom. And when you seek first the kingdom, you're seeking the king of the kingdom. You're not seeking something abstract. You're seeking a person. And then we got down to number four, and we used a little sailboat. You can use a flag. You can use anything else you want to do because we're on a journey. And then those scriptures from the parables where Jesus talks now about lost sheep, 
good Samaritans, he starts going into our behavior. And so, yes, it's a new story. Yes, it's about the kingdom. Yes, it's about uh, natural things. But it's also about how do we live our lives. So he's telling these stories in the understanding that God will speak to the heart of people listening who have an ear to hear. Remember he said that? He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Holy Spirit is speaking to the churches. Remember that. Because everything that Christ is doing, when he was in Caesarea Philippi, and he said, who do people say that I am? What's he trying to do? He's trying to solicit a response to see where people's hearts are at in their understanding. And then he says to the disciples, who do you say that I am? And you can imagine that they kind of went, mm, this is a test. Who do you say that I am? And uh, Peter responded, said, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're the one sent by God to us. And Jesus says, oh, Simon, flesh and blood has not revealed that to you. But my Father who is in heaven. Notice he's not saying God in my Father. There's a whole new relationship now. My Father who in, in heaven, he has revealed this to you. Now catch this. Jesus says, upon the rock of the truth of what you've just said, that I am the Messiah, I am the anointed one, I am the Christ. Jesus says these words, and I hope you hear them with both ears and your whole heart, as Pastor Jason would say. The realization of who I am and the real understanding of what I'm doing upon that truth, I will build what? My church. So whenever you are part of a local congregation, you are saying, Lord, I am on mission with you. As soon as you step away from the local church and you say to yourself, well, I can do whatever I want to do, you're no longer on mission building with him. That's strong. I understand that. But there's been a big movement to deconstruct church, to deconstruct what God says in his word. But Jesus made it clear, Peter, my father has revealed truth to you, and I'm telling you what that truth is. And I'm telling you what I'm doing so that you have understanding of how do you live your life out. And from that moment on, Peter was committed to build the church with Jesus. So stay on mission, folks. Stay focused on what it is that he's doing and get your eyes on Jesus and always remember you have committed to walk with him. You have committed to do what he is doing. And when you do that, you're part of building his church. So you're on a journey, and that journey through life is going to lead you to his presence one day, eternally. And you want to hear him say, well done. And then number five was the hook. 
And remember at the very end, he talks about end times. He talks about what's going to happen in our world. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But if you look at the next slide, we can take a look at all of these things that help us now grasp what we studied last week. Now watch what we'll do here. Let's take away the slide and just put up the word parables. Today we're going to look at Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 16. And you can use the same five examples in Matthew 20. And you can say to yourself, Lord, it's your word, so it's a sword, it's a light, it lights my path, and what I want to understand with this one is, Lord, you're going to talk about your vineyard. You're going to talk about grapes and olives, and you're going to talk about what's going on in your vineyard. And it's not just a vineyard. It's what God's doing in the world. Number two, when we get to a swan, we can say in this one, oh, it's a story of landowners and laborers. Okay, so we got some landowners and we got some laborers. Something's going on in the vineyard then. That there's someone who owns the vineyard, but he's calling people to work with him in the vineyard to be able to be fruitful. Number three, in our story in Matthew 20 today, we can see he promises them a day's wage. That's a promise. His love for his workers is, I'm going to pay you a denarius, a day's wage. And they're all excited about that. It's a promise. Well, let me show you how that works. I have been serving the Lord since the mid-70s. That's a long time. But if somebody walks through the door today and gives their life to Jesus Christ, we both have the same reward. We have the same reward. It's not how long I've been working. It's me understanding the promise from the heart of God that salvation is whosoever will. And it doesn't matter when they come into the vineyard, he promises them the same thing. Now, of course, there are rewards, but that's different than a day's wage. Because from the least to the greatest, from the first to the last, the promise is the same. Oh, the love of God for us. And then we get to the sailboat, and that's really just the journey. And so in this instance, we look at the sailboat and we think, okay, what's happening to these laborers as they go into the vineyard and they begin to work? Well, some of them went in at the very first, at 6 a.m. in the morning till noon, or so 6 to 9, and then some went from 9 to noon, and some went from noon to 3, and then some went not from 3 to 6, but they joined at 5 o'clock to 6, and they all got the same wage. Now, those who had been working all day were a little frustrated and what was God trying to show them? I'm not like you. My heart is gracious. My heart is generous. My heart seeks to bless. 
And what we would do is say, well, my rights. I worked longer than him. I need more money then for that. And Jesus goes, I'm not like that. Did you know that God is abundant in his blessing to the point where you can't contain it all? I was sitting here this morning when Rachel was leading and Dante was leading and we were worshiping. I always, and every time there's worship, I always say, Lord, thank you for the understanding in the Old Testament that Judah lately led out upon the death of Joshua. And they were worshipers. And they were preparing the way. And they were affirming their trust was in God, not in men. And so I sit there every service as we begin to worship, no matter where we are. And I say, Holy Spirit, I'm so grateful that you can convict my heart of the sins of commission and omission. Lord, I don't even know what I've done this week where I have offended you, but I ask your forgiveness today. Holy Spirit, I ask you to fill me to the overflowing today. Make my ears tuned to hear something today. We have a couple at the Orleans campus. If I were to go to their home now and say to them, I'm really interested that on Sunday, March the 12th in 1977, I preached a message, but I can't remember what it was. They would get their book out from 1977. They would open it to March 6th, and they say, Pastor, here's what you preach, and here's the points. Every single service, they brought their Bible, they brought their notebook, they brought their pen, and they said this, Holy Spirit, speak to my heart today. That whatever's being said, sung, prayed, spoken, conversed, whatever goes on today, Holy Spirit, I want to hear what you're saying to your church today. I hope that's you too. That you're not just coming and you sit and it goes in one ear and out the other. See, he's trying to grow us up, as Pastor Joyce says to take us from faith to faith, from strength to strength, and from glory to glory. He wants to grow us up into a mature man or woman, a mature congregation. And we do that best by saying, Holy Spirit, I am not a spectator in the service. I'm a participator in what it is that you're doing in the midst of us today. You think of the songs that we've been singing already they're victorious they're centered in the truth of the gospel that without the resurrection you and i have no hope it's central to our faith so when we sing it we are saying lord we testify to the truth of your word and to the truth of what you have done and i look forward to that moment when in the twinkling of an eye everything about me will be changed and I'll go from natural to eternal. Hallelujah. So in our story today, if we use the sailboat on the journey, some get on the boat early and some get on the boat late, but they all get the same destination. And number five, the hook. The hook at the end of our parable today so I'm giving you a preview so that when we do it, you, you go, ah, there it is, because you get a test at the end. What does he say? 
The first will be last, and the last shall be first. Interesting that he would say that. And we'll go and talk about that as we go along. But I promised you something last week, and I want to do it as quickly as I can. Um, with everything happening in our sin-filled world, what chapter of the book of Revelation do you think that we are in right now? Look up on the screen. Here's the question. I believe we're in Revelation chapter 2 in the Laodicean church. That's where we are. But I want you to understand what Paul was teaching. And he said, gas prices are going up. Food prices are going up. Cost of living is going up. Wickedness levels are going up. Earthquake numbers are going up. Wards are going up. Plagues and famine are going up. But soon the church will be going up. So I just want you to remember that when you talk about resurrection and you think, oh, God, how can you change my problem? And God goes, oh, I don't know. I don't think I have enough power to change that one. In an instant. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a what? So he's not quiet. We ought not to be quiet. With the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ. You think of every believer from the moment of the death of Jesus on the cross and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to something called the church. Every believer that has died their bodies in the ground, they're already spiritually in heaven, and they're waiting for this moment, for the completion of the salvation process for all of our lives. And he says, the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will also be going up. So when people tell you everything in life is going up, say, me too. Just say, me too. And they'll kind of look at you. What do you mean, me too? Let me tell you a scripture. With them in the clouds. Where are we going? In the clouds. Remember the book of Numbers, the cloud and the fire. Presence of God. Overshadowing of the children of Israel in the wilderness. The cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And whenever the cloud lifted, it was time to move. But we're going to go up in the clouds, and we're never going to be moved again. We're going to stay in his presence at that point forever and forever. So the question is, that's where we're at, the Laodicean church. And then we go into chapter 3, and it's really wonderful. And then we go from here into chapter 4, and from 4 all the way almost to the end of the book of Revelation, you never read a word against or for the church again. Where is it? Where'd it go? So let's go to the slide. I'll just do this briefly, and if you need to get a copy of this, you can get it from somebody here, all right, because it's here. Our current state is we're here on earth 
Tribulation hasn't come. Millennial reign hasn't come. Nothing's come. We're just here doing our work in the kingdom. But then there'll be something called the bride and the groom coming together. Because if you know the story that Jesus teaches in the parables about the wedding, he says there'll come a time when the father will take, turn to his son and say, go get your bride. So when Jesus uses the expression, I don't even know the day or the hour, what he's saying is, I'm the groom. My father is the one who will tell me when it's time to go and get my bride. So when we look at the coming of the Lord for his bride, it means the dead and the living members of the body of Christ are joined together in the clouds with the Lord in the air. That's clear from the scriptures. And then when we're in the clouds in the air, in the heavenly realm, in the spiritual realm, judgment seat of Christ takes place for believers only. It's called the Bema. So that's where, when we talk about our parable later on today, there is something about what we do in the flesh versus what we do in the spirit. The motivation of our heart, the direction that our life was going in, and Paul teaches in Corinthians, there are rewards at the Bema for what we've done in obedience to Christ. Has nothing to do with your salvation, that's the denarius you're given, but it has a lot to do with what you do with what you've been given. That's the demonstration of your love for God because salvation is his love for you. So then we have judgment seat for believers. The marriage of the lamb is going to take place. On earth now, Israel is going to be attacked by a northern coalition. It's before the tribulation period. And you and I know right now, all over the Middle East, the checkerboard is moving quickly. Whether it's Russia, whether it's Iran, whether it is Syria, whether it is Sudan, whether it is Turkey, what is happening in the Middle East is dangerous to the little nation of Israel. But God made a promise, I am your God. I will take care of you. And Israel during its 67 war was able to say, we do not know how we won this war because we were outgunned, we were outmanned, we were strategically outlined, and all of a sudden we were the winners. Jerusalem was now back in our hands. We could start to unify the nation. So I just want you to know, in the natural, we're limited. In the spirit, we're not. And when you have God on your side fighting for you in your situation and your circumstance, he gives us a natural example of a spiritual truth. And so when you see that, Israel's going to be attacked. That will release the Antichrist to sign a covenant with Israel to be able to say, let's live in peace. And how many know that in Israel right now, about 98% of the population do not follow the Lord? Very small segment are Messianic believers. The vast majority are just Zionists. They just believe in Israel politically, and they're not following the Lord. So they're open to be deceived. And that's what will take place here. And then when the covenant is signed, the tribulation begins. It's seven years, Daniel says. First three and a half, the 70th week of Daniel. 
Where people get mixed up here at the end times, they don't know about the unchurched, the churched, and Israel. When you come to the end times, you cannot mix up God's word to the church or his word to Israel. They are two distinct things in the scripture. And when we are caught up together to be with the groom, then God's promises to Israel in the earth must be fulfilled. He promised them a certain border, an area of land. He promised to reveal himself to them. He promised in Romans that all Israel shall be saved. In other words, he's going to convict their hearts and lives. According to Zechariah, many of them will see the one that they have pierced and their hearts will say, Lord, we repent and they will come to faith. So don't mix up the scriptures that are for Israel, the scriptures for the church and the scriptures for the unchurched. God's at work in all three right now. And when we talk about revival, we're talking about the unchurched. We're talking about people who have no idea of what the church means and why it exists. When we talk about the groom coming for the bride, we're talking specifically about the church, dead and alive, the body of Christ. And then when we talk about Israel, we're talking about his promises to be fulfilled to them in the end times. And so tribulation begins, the Jacob's trouble, remember Israel's, uh, Jacob's name was trained to Israel. Israel is at the crosshairs, is the center of what God is doing, and it includes global nations and unbelievers. Let's go to the next slide. The great tribulation is the final three and a half years. What takes place and what, what shifts in that three and a half years and then three and a half years? What shift is the Antichrist takes the peace covenant, rips it up, and says, I want to be worshipped. And in the tribulation temple, Jesus says in Matthew 24, the abomination of desolation. When you see that, then you'll know that we're coming to the close of the age. And so it takes place. It's a desolation, Jesus says. How dare you set up your own image in my house? And then it moves on to the nations gather once again for war. When you go to Israel with us, we're going again next year in April. You stand at Mount Carmel and you look out over the valley of Megiddo, which is called Armageddon, and you realize the nations, the coalitions of the nations will gather in this place and they will make their way towards Jerusalem to destroy Jerusalem. But let me give you a hint. They don't make it. They get there, and God uses what? The sword of his word and destroys them. Why? Because their intent is only evil. He judges them for what they are doing against Israel. Remember Abraham, the promise? I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. We're not God. So sometimes we stumble over those things. But God's a righteous judge, and God understands what's going on, and he rules that way. So the nations gather. Jerusalem is the crosshairs for Satan. Antichrist seeks to destroy even the remnant of the Jews. So during this whole seven-year period, as God is dealing with unbelievers all over the world, he's dealing with unbelievers in Israel. 
He's putting pressure on them to open their hearts to believe. And how many know that when you study the tribulation, there are many saints during the tribulation. These are people who gave their lives to Christ during the tribulation, but because of Antichrist's heart, he will work in and through this process of killing them, destroying them. And if you study Revelation, in heaven, the martyrs are under the altar crying out, Lord, how long? How long before you avenge our death? How long before justice happens in the earth? And so you see then there comes a moment when Antichrist is doing this for three and a half years, and Jesus says in Matthew 24, if that had not been cut short, there'd be nobody left. That shows you the intent of the heart of Satan as he works in the Antichrist life. And then the second coming. Remember, the first coming for us is when Jesus comes for his church, for his bride. The second one is he comes with his church. One is in the air. The other is he's going to touch down on the Mount of Olives, put his feet on earth, and we're going to put our feet here too. Can you imagine what your feet are going to look like when you have a spiritual body? No corns, no ingrown toenails. Going to be wonderful. So the second coming is at the end of the tribulation where Jesus says, enough is enough. We're going to wrap this up. And I'm going to show you what it's like to live in my kingdom. And so the final battle, as he ascends the Mount of Olives, then we go into a period where things kind of get settled and prepared for all that Jesus is going to do. Now switch to the last slide. There will come a great white throne judgment. What does that mean? It means that God is going to judge those who have come out of the tribulation who hate him, who were unbelievers, and they are going to be judged. Nations are going to be judged as a sheep nation or a goat nation. And then ultimately, there's going to come a moment when unbelievers are going to be cast into the lake of fire forever and forever. Why? Because there's no desire in them for repentance. So they're not going to be part of his kingdom. So then the old heaven and earth will be destroyed, a new one will be created, new Jerusalem will come down out of heaven, and then the eternal state, as it was planned in the beginning, will continue on, except for this blip on the screen called time. And the, the beautiful part of the story is when it comes to a thousand years of reigning with Jesus on the earth, during the millennial reign, after the tribulation period, it's only for believers, natural and spiritual. So we're working with Jesus during that time, the same as we're working with Jesus now, building the church. Then we'll be establishing the things of his kingdom because the scriptures are clear. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Jesus said this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world for a witness and then the end will come. Joel tells us the same thing. Upon your sons and your daughters, old men and young men, I'll pour my spirit out and they will prophesy. 
So we're here for a thousand years working with the Lord. Natural people are here as well that were believers that went into the millennial reign and they're going to have kids and they're going to do what they do. Now, can you imagine how many people will be born in a thousand years? How old are we? 155. <laughs> could you imagine a thousand years? And at the end of the thousand years where it's been perfect government, perfect leadership, I mean, we crab about our political leaders. We will see Jesus rule and reign in the whole earth and bring it back to its pristine state. No longer unrighteous, but righteous, holy. We talk about experiencing the presence of God in a service. We will experience the presence of God 24-7. He will be with us constantly and will be serving his purposes in through the thousand years. But at the very end, when the enemy has been put in prison for a thousand years, God will show humanity that the heart has to be changed. We have to be regenerated. We have to be born again. We have to be transformed by the blood of Christ and the power of God's spirit. Our dead spirit has to be brought to life. You cannot educate it beyond its sinful state. So after a thousand years, all of a sudden, Satan will be released and of the millions of people born during the thousand years, he will still find some that he can deceive and he will lead them into destruction. And when that's all over, Satan will be bound, unbelievers will be bound, and Jesus will be able to say, Father, your kingdom now has come on earth as it is in heaven. And he will begin the process of saying to us, this is not the end, but this is just the beginning. And you and I will go into eternity with him forever and 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 forever. And when you get to that, and forever and forever. In other words, there will be no conclusion to our relationship with the one who has loved us redeemed us, filled us, and called us to walk with him. So here's what Joyce and I go through. We've been serving the Lord now for 45, 46 years. And every so often we have those moments where we say, Lord, I don't want to go to church today. I want to put a gone fishing sign on the door because all the saints have gone to their cottage and they've gone fishing. And we get miserable in all that. What am I saying to you? I'm saying there are pleasures in this life that God is going to ask you to set aside because he knows what's coming. If my life is just a vapor, so I've served him for 45 years, and so he says to me, Barry, okay, here's 45 years where you made some sacrifices, but here's eternity that I'm giving you that you will be fully aware of my presence and fully engaged in what I'm calling you to do forever and forever and forever. And when you think this world is beautiful, wait till you see it without sin. 
Wait till you see it when it's righteous. And so he's just trying to help us grasp all of these parables are meant to arrest us so that we can go, oh, Jesus, I don't want to live a self-centered, selfish life. I want to be on mission with you. I want to hear what your parables are saying. And I want to say, Holy Spirit, speak to my heart today. So let's do it. Let's look at Matthew chapter 20, beginning at verse 1 to 16, and we'll go through this quick. Keep in mind, as Jesus is speaking, the landowner, that's the father, the laborers are all the people who are willing to labor in the vineyard, and the foreman is Jesus. <laughs> He's not a hard taskmaster. And so he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. So he's saying to them, I'll give you a day's wage. That was good enough for them. And going about the third hour, so now it's not six in the morning anymore, it's nine in the morning, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever's right I will give you. So they went. So let me let you know, when an altar call is given in a service, it's God saying to you, now's the time. Step up. Step in to what it is that I want to do in your heart and in your life. And so going out again about the sixth hour, so now he's noon. They've been laboring six hours already. And then at the ninth hour, so it's three in the afternoon, so he keeps going out into the vineyard, and he keeps going to the marketplace to say, if you're idle, I got work for you to do. Come into my kingdom. How many of you know lots of people are idle right now? And he calls, and he beckons. And... About the 11th hour, so that's 5 o'clock in the afternoon, there's still people in the marketplace waiting to do some kind of work that day. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said, no one's hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour, 5 o'clock, each of them received a denarius. Now, just watch what happens in our humanity. If they worked one hour and were given a day's wage, the people that started 6 in the morning were saying to themselves, man, we we're going to get more than that. They didn't understand the landowner. On receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house. They said, huh, all we got was a denarius too. These last worked only an hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Did you not agree for me when I told you what the benefits of the gospel were? 
How would you like to walk in the shoes of the Apostle Paul in all that he had to go through? Or Peter? Or you think of some of the Old Testament prophets? Or what about the believers in Korea right now? North Korea, China, some parts of the world that you can't even mention, it's so horrendous. If you lived in Nigeria right now, you'd have to have security guards at the door with guns because people get killed in the building because they belong to Jesus. And you think of all of that and you say, Lord, it's too easy that I live in Canada and I gave my life to you and I live a relatively comfortable life. And he's saying, you came in when you came in and you got the same reward that I promised everyone. Everybody gets a denarius. Everybody gets salvation. Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I gave to you. And then he says these words, am I, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? When you read the Psalms, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness therein. This is his world. He has a right to do what he's doing in the world. And he's moving in nations. He's moving on leaders. He's doing what he's doing. And all of us just step back and say like we did at the beginning, all the things that are going to unfold at the end times, it's the love of God, the heart of God, the willingness of God to reach out to humanity and draw them to himself. And so he says, or do you begrudge my generosity? How many here are grateful for their salvation? Are you glad that God was generous to you? Me too. Then he says, so the last will be first. And the first will be last. It's not about your rights. It's not about you screaming, that's not fair. We have a generation that loves equality. We don't like inequality. We want to get what we are owed and what we deserve. And when it comes to the kingdom... I don't know about you, but I'm glad that I don't get what I deserve. I am glad that I get the mercy of God, the kindness of God, and the judgment of God through the blood of his son. Because if I got what I deserved, I'd go to hell. But I get what I don't deserve. And I've come into the things of the kingdom at the last hour. I didn't come in at 6 o'clock in the morning. This has been going on now for thousands of years. And we're coming in at the last hour. Hallelujah. And we're still getting a denarius. We're still getting what God promises to us. And so I've learned that landowners like God the Father, they manage the affairs of the earth. I'm only a laborer. I'm just in sales. That's all. I just tell people what it is the landowner is saying, and I leave it to him to do the rest. Amen? Because <clears throat> once you think you're in control, you're in delusion. 
That's why he calls us to open our hearts and to step back and to humble ourselves and to trust him. And also when we had worship at the beginning of the service, when people stand up here and begin to lead us in worship, they have all the insecurities that you and I have. But they say, Lord, I'm going to serve you anyway. I'm going to worship you with my voice anyway because my heart is to love you and serve you. Joyce and I remember in the first days of our walk with Christ, we'd be sitting in small groups and someone would ask us to pray and we'd panic. Me? Out loud? Yes. And then the Lord spoke to Joyce one day and said, who are you praying to? The people sitting in the room or to me? If you're praying to me, I understand your heart. I understand where you stumble. I understand what you're going through, but just talk to me. If you're doing it for the people in the room, then you're comparing yourself. You're contrasting yourself. You're trying to impress people. That's not spiritual. That's flesh. And so when you learn, Lord, I'm talking to you, all of a sudden the pressure's off. And you just know and love him. There's another scripture that we won't talk about much. It's in John 21. And Peter's gone through all the things that he's gone through in his life. He's denied the Lord. He's been restored to the Lord. And then at one point, he is walking. And John is close by. And Peter does this. Lord, what about him? What's going to happen to him? Um, You're telling me that I'm going to probably die going somewhere where I don't want to go and I'm going to be upside down. And Lord, what about him? And Jesus says, well, what's that to you? You follow me. So can I encourage you? Always think about where you're at first before you try to compare yourself to somebody else. Peter learned the lesson very, very well. Whatever you want to do in John's life, Lord, that's your doing. You know, Joyce and I pastored a long time, and sometimes people come and sometimes people go, and in the beginning we would take it personal and we'd have a real struggle with it until we said, Lord, what's going on here? And he said, just rejoice that you have the privilege of being part of their spiritual journey. Whatever that starting point is and whatever that ending point is, you're part of their journey. What they do with that is not your business. What is your business is what you do with what I've called you to do. And so you see this in all the aspects of what God is doing. Let me finish with this. Matthew 16, 27 says, The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay. Remember we talked about the Bema? He will repay each person according to what he has done. So there are rewards for you and me in our service to God. Remember he said, even if you give a cup of cold water, in my name you don't lose your reward. And then 1 Corinthians 3 Each one's work will become manifest. 
for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one had done. So it talks about wood, hay, and stubble, and then precious jewels and gold and silver and all of that. And you're just going to stand there and say, Lord, let your fire prove my life. And he will do that. And then out of what remains is where you and I receive rewards. Has nothing to do with salvation. Has nothing to do with the denarius. But it has a lot to do with the expression of our love for him while we were here on earth. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together. The light is shining, the sword is up, the number's one, there's only one vineyard. The swan is swooping through, looks like a two, there's a landowner and there are laborers in the vineyard. Three is the love of God that all of us get the same reward. Four is the journey, no matter what hour of the day, we all get the same reward salvation and the hook you may feel like you're last now but you will be first and if you're first you will be last in other words it's going to deal with all of us accordingly based on our life how we've lived it so here's what I want to do I want to end the service by asking you to do something in your heart of hearts and I'm going to ask you in a moment to step out of your seat and to come and stand at the altar. And Joyce is going to lead us in prayer. And here's what I'm going to do. If you do not know Jesus intimately and personally, can I remind you that this is a wonderful moment to say, Lord, I've been standing idle in life, and I want to step into the vineyard, and I want to work for you. I want to serve your purposes with the time that I have left in my life and sometimes we don't know how much time we have left where I live there's a little crosswalk and this week a 24 year old motorcyclist was killed last month same walk same place another 24 year old motorcyclist was killed I showed Joyce where it was today the question is are you ready the question is the gospel has gone forth your heart needs to respond to that. So I will be asking you in a moment to step out of your seat and come forward. But joining you are going to be lots of other people who say, Jesus, I just want to affirm today that I am a worker in your vineyard and that I appreciate the reward that I'm getting for a day's wage. But Lord, I want to demonstrate in my own heart that I want not only to love you more, but when I serve you, I'm going to do it for all the right reasons. I want the motivation of my heart to be pure, that my serving is my gift back to you for the gift that you've given to me that I could never repay.